All right, this is uh, 1 John 2, 1 to 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, once again, good morning, and uh, thank you to Luke for the invitation to join him in this series today. I told him before service started, I wrote my sermon this week, and then I listened to his sermon from last week, yesterday, and I thought, Luke just preached my sermon. Uh, So that's a scary feeling as a preacher, and uh, so we're both hopeful that you forgot what he said last week. Um, Yeah. So taking, uh, actually taking the thesis that Luke gave last week, that God is light, and that that's sort of the, the point of First John, I want to build on that just a little bit, expand on that idea, and put something else in front of you today that I think will we'll dovetail nicely with that. Um, so you, you looked last week at what it means to walk in the light. Today, actually, we're going to talk about what it looks like to know that you are in the light, How do I know that I am in the light? Um, In the prior section, John wrote that if we claim to have no sin, verse 8, as Luke preached on last week, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. And then he picks up this section today in verse 1 by saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. Now, if you read from the ESV like we just did, it says so that you may not sin. But actually, I I think it's a, a better translation. The NIV gets it pretty pretty good here when he says, I'm writing these things so that you will not sin. We'll talk about what that looks like in just a little bit as well. So these six verses are really about how to live as Christians. How do you live the Christian life? What does that even look like? What does that mean? So if we're in the light, as Jesus is in the light, then we can't walk in darkness. Verse one seems to indicate that we should be sinless, but it doesn't really take more than about five minutes for us to realize that we're all in deep trouble with that. I remember being at a youth conference a very, very long time ago uh, as, a, as a young boy, and the leader of this conference had us in a breakout session. We're all sitting on the floor, and we're listening to him, and I'll, I'll never forget this question because it was so powerful to think about then and even more powerful to think about now in light of how we read First John and how we live the Christian life. But he said, do you, he, he said that he asked a little kid one time, do you think that you could go the rest of your life without sinning? Uh, I'd just love to see all of the heads shaking right now because we all know the answer to that question. Of course not. And so he, he asked the little kid, he kept breaking it down, little series of questions, and he, he says, okay, so, so you can't go the rest of your life without sinning. That, that seems pretty intense. All right, well, could you go maybe the next year without sinning? Anybody, show of hands, you think you'd go the, the next year of your life without sinning? And, of course, the little kid says, no, I don't think so. Well, what about a month? And he keeps breaking it down until finally he asks this little kid, do you think you could go five minutes 
just five minutes without sinning. And in total childlike naivety, of course, the kid says, well, sure. And so the guy says, so why don't you just live the rest of your life five minutes at a time? Well, that sounds great. But imagine the defeat that a 14-year-old boy feels when he sins in the first five minutes of his day. Or the defeat that you feel as you recount, retrace your steps, even from this morning, over the last week. See, we can't really go five minutes without sinning. We'll deal with that later. What was, what was the point? It was the, the point that that guy was trying to make is that we could live a life of what Luke referenced last week, perfection, perfectionism, sinless perfection. And John actually tells us that's impossible, and yet he still pushes us on to live in a way that we can't sin. Now, those two things feel at total odds with one another. It's like somebody took one half of your brain and the other half of your brain, and they just ripped it apart. So how do I live under the reality that I can't go without sinning, and yet I'm called at the same time not to sin? It, it just it feels like a setup for failure. And so actually what John's giving us here is a little bit of a coping mechanism for how to live as a Christian. According to the National Library of Medicine, coping is defined as the thoughts and behaviors mobilized to manage internal and external stressful situations. So some of these thoughts and behaviors are helpful, some are not. As a cow, you know, for example, as a Cowboys fan, I rehearse my coping mechanisms during the off-season to manage the disappointment I am certain to feel come the second week of the season. You know, shutting a child in her room and closing the door so that you don't have to deal with the mess. That's a, that's a healthy coping mechanism. It's a problem-solving strategy. Four glasses of wine every night, not so much. Or seeking support during a time of crisis is a healthy coping mechanism. Emotional suppression, again, not so much. And so let me give you our focus this morning as we, as we work on the coping mechanism. That our focus this morning, the central focus of this text, is that Christian living is about conforming to Jesus. Christian living is about conforming to Jesus from start to finish, from the time I say yes to following Jesus until I'm with him in eternity. The entirety of my life is about conforming to Jesus. That's what we're after here. So it's nice and broad, easily memorable. You can tack that on to the thesis that Luke gave you last week, that God is light. And, and another way to say this is that the rest of my life is about conforming to that light conforming to the light. If you're in the light, then your life is about conforming to Jesus. Now that's easy enough, right? We've all got it down. Everybody in here, you know, like you're the textbook case of what it is to follow Jesus. I'm not, so I'd love to learn from you. But if if you could be like the guy, you know, maybe maybe you're like this guy that I got a text from a couple of weeks ago who says he he, he it was a very, very colorful series of text messages. And then he followed it up with, sorry, I know that's not very Christian, but hey, Jesus flipped tables. 
I don't think that's quite what John has in mind here uh, in, in our quest to be like Jesus. But let's talk through our text. We have the, the very present reality of sin in our lives. First part of verse 1, John tells us that sin is a present reality for us. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you will not sin. What things is he writing what, how, do we, how do we find that out? Well, first of all, we look back at the prior section. Verse 7, he says, walk in the light as he is in the light. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 10, we make God a liar. So we deceive ourselves and then we make God out to be a liar. But you see, in God, there's only truth. He's not a liar. He's only perfect. He is radiant light. So if someone is to be made a liar, actually it's me, it's us, which is where John goes in chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. So we can talk a little bit about the context of 1 John. This letter doesn't follow any of the typical first century letter writing formats. There's no, you know, dear so-and-so at the beginning. There's no signature at the end. This was actually most likely a sermon that then got passed around. Now, if you put a letter in the mail, which I know is super archaic and outdated, people actually did this uh, at one point, but if you put a letter in the mail and you forget to put a stamp on it, the post office is going to re-deliver that letter to whoever sent it. But in order to do that, you have to, you have to put the return address up in the top left part of that envelope. If you don't do that, then the letter just gets lost. They don't know where to send it. And so not only did John not put his name on this letter, he didn't put the return address. So we actually don't know a whole lot about the context of this letter. We have to figure it out from the context or from the reading and from the writing. He didn't fill it out. He also didn't tell us who it was sent to. So we have to take some guesses about that. But what was most likely happening in the context into which John wrote was, was a group of people who claimed to be Christians who claimed to love Jesus, who claimed to know God, and they were claiming a higher level of spirituality that they had finally figured out what it was to live a life that was in line with God's gospel. It didn't take them long. I mean, this was only about 30 years after Jesus, so, you know, give or take. They probably said things like this. They probably said things like, I'm good with God. We've, we've got this little thing going on. We're good. Or... You know, God is love, which John actually writes a number of times here in his letter, correcting what it means to say that God is love. God is love. And a relationship with Jesus doesn't require me to go to church. Doesn't require me to be part of a community of faith. So they, they left. They, what uh, to use a, a theological term, they apostatized. They left the church. By the way, did you know that about... 66% of the people living in Dripping Springs, where we're planting a church, espouse that very notion. That a relationship with Jesus doesn't require me to go to church. There's no expectation that I need to do that. In fact, only about 12.5% of people living in Dripping Springs believe that a relationship with Jesus requires participation in a church. 12.5% which is also about the same number of people who belong to churches like this one who believe the gospel and believe the Bible and teach it. About 12.5% of people claim that kind of a religious faith. By contrast, 40% claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus. So why is this disparity? And by the way, I would guess 
that those statistics are probably similar to what you experience in all of South Texas. That's not unique to drip. So what of this statement then? Why did John write this particular verse to start with? I don't, I don't think it's so that you won't sin in general. I think that's part of it. I think there's a, a sense in which he wants us to eradicate sin from our lives. Of, of course, that's the case. Jesus, every time he encountered somebody who was in sin, you, you can take the, the story when Jesus met a woman who was caught in adultery. And he, he forgives her. He pardons her sin. He says, I don't condemn you. I don't accuse you. And, and then he looks at her and he says to her, go and do what? Go and sin no more. Go and stop sinning. That's a, that's a pretty consistent command in the scriptures. Stop sinning. If, if I could say to you anything pastoral today, I would say this. If you are in sin, if you are living in sin, you know that what you're doing is sinful, then take up the biblical admonition. Stop it. Now, I know that sounds super easy. We'll, we'll talk about that coping mechanism in just a minute. But he's writing these things not so that you'll stop sinning in general, but so that you don't follow the way that these people have gone in particular. He's telling this group of Christians, don't follow the deceptive lie that you don't need each other, that you don't need the Christian community, that you don't belong to the visible church of Jesus Christ. Don't follow that. Don't take their cues. I'm writing these things, in essence, so that you won't follow in their footsteps. And that's where we get hung up. You see, I have a sin problem. It's terrible. You have a sin problem. The Bible teaches that I sin against God every day in my thoughts, my words, my actions. I mean, it's pretty brutal. And admittedly, some days are better than others, but every day is pretty much the same. So how do we cope with this reality? And just to, to pile on a bit here, John Calvin, who was a French theologian, he ministered in Switzerland during the time of the, the Protestant Reformation. He wrote this about this verse. He said, it is not only the sub and substance of the preceding doctrine, but the meaning of almost the whole gospel that we are to depart from sin. So here he's just piling on. He's bagging on. Stop sinning. What's he saying? He's saying that sin and God are incompatible. They don't mix. And if you claim to belong to God, then your life needs to reflect his light. And this happens when we turn from sin. So if you've been tracking along so far, you might be feeling pretty badly about yourself. And the Apostle Paul, whose writings account for the majority of the New Testament, wrote this about halfway through his seminal letter to the Roman Christians. At the end of Romans chapter 7, he says, and this is the Apostle Paul the great apostle, the church planter, the guy that we owe so much of our Christian faith and doctrine and teaching and practice to. He said, the good things that I want to do, I end up not doing them. The things that I don't want to do, I, I continue to do them. And it's incredibly frustrating. And then he says, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? That's pretty desperate. And he comes to the end. Here's, here's our coping strategy. But thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us the victory. And then he turns right around and he says, if you're in Christ, Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for you. And we're going to talk a little bit about that now because, you see, Jesus is our defense attorney. 
We have, a, we have the present reality of sin. Then we see that Jesus is our defense attorney. That's in the second part of verse 1 and on into verse 2. But see, Jesus is not our accuser. God is not our accuser. A lot of people get the picture of God that, you know, it's like the Bruce Almighty version. You know, God's some mean kid sitting with a magnifying glass on top of an anthill. He's just waiting to zap us. And my guess is most of us sort of live in that reality. Even though we wouldn't say it quite that way, we kind of live in that, in that world. Well, if I, you know, if I do this, God's going to get me. You go through a prolonged illness. What have I done, God, to deserve this? In other words, God finally got you, right? That he's the mean kid sitting on the end. You go through a prolonged period of suffering and it's, what in the world have I done to deserve this from God? As if he has somehow finally brought all of your sins to bear on your life. And they're washing over you like a wave. But see, the Bible teaches us that God is not our accuser. Jesus is not our accuser. God is actually our judge. There's a little bit of a difference here. We have an accuser. We have one, an enemy, an adversary that the Bible calls the devil, who is constantly standing before God, telling him of every single way in which you have sinned against God, thought, word, and deed, every day. He's your prosecutor. So John's kind of painting a picture for us of a courtroom scene. God sitting as judge. We have an adversary, the devil, who who wants to remind God and us of all of the awful things that we've ever done, that we continue to do, and probably will end up doing in the future. And God, who's sitting as judge, is right to say, well, you know, you should be condemned for that. But we have a defense attorney in Jesus. See, the... We have two schools of thought that really permeate religious thinking on this issue. The first is I need to try harder. I just need to be a better version of me. It leads to a legalistic approach to God where usually you feel simultaneously morally superior to other people and yet horrifically insecure because you know the real truth. You, You buy into the whisper of the enemy, the adversary, and yet you strive harder and harder to make sure that God doesn't get you. In other words, you self-represent. You have a defense attorney, but you want to self-represent. Here, God, I, I've got this. Often those who gravitate to the work harder side of the spectrum like to make deals with God. Your coping mechanism is actually manipulation. You want to manipulate God. God, you owe me. I've done so much. I've been so good. Why are you punishing me for these things? Why haven't you given me? You know, my Mercedes and, you know, winning the lottery and whatever else it is that we would throw out there. But the other side of this continuum, though, thinks like this, that everything's okay. Jesus forgives everything, so, hey, it's no big deal. Say la vie, we're just going to live and let live, and I'm going to keep on sinning because it's all already covered. It's an attitude and lifestyle known in the church as licentiousness. It's a big way of saying reckless living. I just live however I want. Neither of these faith systems stand up against the Scriptures. Neither of these faith systems line up with what John's telling us here so that we will not sin. For the reckless person, the licentious one, John says, don't live that way. If you're a child of the light, you can't walk in the darkness anymore. You have to give it up. You have to live in a way that looks like the light, but most likely you, like me, look down on that person. After all, we're here. And so... We're the ones 
looking to better ourselves, to just be a better version of me, to be better tomorrow than we are today. And we probably, I know I do, fall on the more legalistic side of things. I've worked hard. I've stayed in your house. I've been with you this whole time, God. See, at least I'm not like that guy. Those people aren't even here. But the picture that John has painted for us is that of a courtroom, God presiding judge. We have the adversary, and then we've got Jesus, our our defense attorney. And we can either run to our self-defense of legalism or give up altogether and skip our court date. That's licentiousness, the reckless living. But the gospel points us to a better way. It's actually the only way that you and I can ever stand before God. It's the only way that we can know that we're in the light. And so look at what John says in the second half of verse 1. But if, and really when, anybody sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That word advocate, it's a legal term. It's Jesus continually standing before God and advocating for you, defending you. He used, John used two qualifications here for Jesus. First, he's our advocate. He's our defense attorney. And the second is at the end of the verse, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have a righteous advocate, a righteous defender. Again, I'll, use, I'll go back to John Calvin here as he wrote on this verse, the intercession of Christ is a continual application of his death for our salvation. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is standing before God while you have an accuser reminding God of everything that you've ever done. And Jesus saying, I paid for it. I paid for it. I paid for it. And God's saying, paid in full, pardoned, not guilty, mine. Righteousness, according to the Bible, is the intentional disadvantaging of oneself for the advantage of the community. That's what it means to be righteous. All through the Proverbs, the Bible talks, the writer talks about righteousness. Biblical righteousness is the intentional disadvantaging of self for the advantage of the community. In Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45, Jesus is having an encounter with his disciples, and he says to him, he called his disciples to himself, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came, what? Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The picture, friends, of biblical righteousness is Jesus emptying himself, the disadvantaging of himself, of everything that he was owed, everything that he deserved. I mean, he left heaven for crying out loud. He was the Lord of all creation, the ruler of everything. By him, through him, and for him were all things created. In him, all things hold together. And he gave all of that up to come be a servant, taking on the likeness of mankind, even down to the lowest of the low, the slave. So that you and I might have the advantage of his defense. See, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had a choice to make. He could have chosen to save his own life, to skip the cross, and to leave all of humanity at war with God. He could have walked away. But instead, while he prayed, even though he asked God if there's any other way, for this thing to, to move forward, any other way for your plan to be executed, then let this cup pass from me. Let the cup of the crucifixion go on. Let it not happen. And then he uttered what's probably one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
and he surrendered fully to the righteous act of disadvantaging himself for the advantage of others. And because he followed through on his search and rescue mission, verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. See, friends, sin is a universal problem. You have it, I have it, the whole world has it. And no amount of denial, cover-up, or or deception is going to change that fact. But salvation is also a universal offering. That call goes out to everybody. Turn from your sin, repent, and be saved. Because of Jesus. John wants to encourage, equip, and empower Christians for the lifetime journey of discipleship, the long road home. That's our final point here. He wants us to learn how to cope with the reality of who we are by showing the greatness of who Jesus is as we make our way into eternity. The Christian life is a journey. It's not a decision. The Christian life is a lifetime of stutter-stopped progress. It is a lifetime of falling down and getting back up. It is a lifetime of skint knees and reaching up to your father, asking him to hold you. It is a lifetime of surrender. When you go back to our focus for this morning that Christian living is about conforming to Jesus, we need to understand it's a long road. There are no quick fixes to being like Jesus. The question is, how do we know that we're on the road? John's gospel, the fourth book in the New Testament, along with this letter, have one key aim. One key aim. There is a a word that he continually repeats in this sermonic letter. It's a slight change from his purpose statement found at the end of his gospel in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, verses uh, 30 to 31, John wrote these words. He said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So John, John's the miracle recorder. He recorded all kinds of miracles, all kinds of things that Jesus did, all kinds of things that he taught and that he said. And he said, Jesus did far more miracles, other signs, than what's recorded here in this book. But these are written, what he wrote down, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, his gospel was written to those outside the church, to those who were curious about this Jesus figure, to those outside the bounds of Christianity. Here's what his letter says near the end of this letter. In John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's, from the gospel, this is to you that you may believe. Now in 1 John, this is to you who do believe. You're on that road. You're on that path. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So what is, what is John's aim here? It's that you will have the assurance It's about offering assurance to those who've begun the journey of the Christian faith and urging you on to continue. Keep going. Here's a little secret. Christian living is incredibly difficult. Christian living is incredibly difficult. In fact, I would say it's impossible, which 
is why we have to continually return to Jesus and the work that he did in his perfect life of obedience that he continually advocates for us before God the Father. Again, I'm going to quote Calvin here. The doctrine of this gospel is a lively mirror in which we contemplate the image of God and are transformed into the same because Christian living is about conforming to Jesus. And so as I look at the gospel, it's not about me. As I look at the gospel, it's not about how bad I was or how bad I am or how bad I will be. It's definitely not about how good I am. What the gospel is, is about the greatness of God and his rescue of mankind. His reaching down and coming to you. His intentional disadvantaging of himself so that he could have a living, lifelong, lifetime, even extending into eternity, eternal relationship with you. That's what the gospel is. And as I gaze on that, and as I look at that, and as I'm reminded of that, both in his word and in the visible words of the sacrament, when you come to the table and you're reminded, this is what it cost. This was the expense of Christian living. Then you begin to transform more and more into the image of the one who saved you. So that you get the insult that was given to the Christians at Antioch the first time, you little Christs. They were called Christians because they looked like Jesus. That sounds like he may be running us to a legalistic approach when he says, you want to know that you're on the long road home, you want to know that you belong to Jesus, then keep his commandments. But the obedience always follows the relationship, and you can go all the way back to the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Relationship. Have no other gods before me. Now obedience. You have to get the order right. That's the picture the writer of Hebrews painted in Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. Since we have a great high priest who passed through the, who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Keep going. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, on a road trip, you need a map. If a compass, if you're flying, you need a flight plan. Eugene Peterson says that the letter to the Hebrews defines our program. Here's his translation in the message of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore... Uh, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and this is not his translation. His translation is up there, but I'll read it here. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. In other words, no flabby Christians. You know, shake off the extra sin, shake off the weight. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see what this means? All those pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on, this is Peterson's. It means we better get on with it. Strip down, start running, never quit, no extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race that we're in. Okay, this is all well and good. I'm giving you a lot of stuff. What difference is it going to make on Monday? What does it matter that Jesus is advocating for me in heaven on a Thursday afternoon when I'm getting flipped off in traffic? 
or on a Wednesday morning when someone in the office makes a pass at me that I'm actually not totally, I don't actually totally hate it. Or on a Saturday morning when I'm up early stressing over my bank account. What difference does it make? First, very quickly, just three applications. First, learn to live in gospel reality. Learn to live in gospel reality. This is not our home. This is not our home. There's more to life than the tyranny of the urgent. Don't give up hope of becoming more like Jesus just because you weren't a whole lot like him today. That's the reality of our lives. Second, learn to live in gospel confidence. Learn to live in gospel confidence. Jesus is your defender, not your accuser. We have an accuser. We believe it's God, but God is our judge. Jesus is our defender. The devil is our accuser. When he reminds you of your past, simply remind him of his future. Third, live in gospel conformity. Live in gospel conformity. Learn to live like Jesus. How? You have to spend time with him. Spend time with him. I'll close one more time with my friend John Calvin. Those who keep his commandments are those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity to form their lives in conformity to the will of God. In other words, to keep God's commands with all of my brokenness and all of my inability, I keep trying. And that's Christian living. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray?